Chapter Seven of the Secret City. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Seven. Some three years before, when Ivan Petrovitch had gone to live with the Markoviches, it had occurred to them that they had two empty rooms and that these would accommodate one or two paying guests it seemed to them still more attractive that these guests should be english and i expect it was ivan petrovitch who emphasized this the british consulate was asked to assist them and after a few inconspicuous clerks and young business men they entertained for a whole six months the honourable charles strafford one of the junior secretaries at the embassy at the end of those six months the honourable charles burdened with debt and weakened by little sleep and much liquor was removed to a less exciting atmosphere with all his faults he left faithful friends in the markovitch flat and he on his side gave so enthusiastic an account of madame markovitch's attempts to restrain and modify his impetuosities that the embassy recommended her care and guidance to other young secretaries the war came vera mikhailovna declared that she could have lodgers no longer and a terrible blow this was to ivan petrovitch then suddenly towards the end of nineteen sixteen she changed her mind and announced to the embassy that she was ready for any one whom they could send her henry bohun was offered accepted and prepared for ivan petrovitch was a happy man once more i never discovered that markovitch was much consulted in these affairs vera mikhailovna ran the flat financially industrially and spiritually markovitch meanwhile was busy with his inventions i have as yet said nothing about nikolai leontievich's inventions i hesitate indeed to speak of them although they are so essential and indeed important part of my story i hesitate simply because i do not wish this narrative to be at all fantastic but that it should stick quite honestly and obviously to the truth it is certain moreover that what is naked truth to one man seems the falsest fantasy to another and after all i have from beginning to end only my own conscience to satisfy the history of the human soul and its relation to divinity which is i think the only history worth any man's pursuit must push its way again and again through this same tangled territory which infests the region lying between truth and fantasy one passes suddenly into a world that seems pure falsehood so obscure so twisted and coloured is it one is through one looks back and it lies behind one as the clearest truth such as experience makes one tender to other men's fancies and less impatient of the vague and half-defined traveller's tales that other men tell child roland is not the only traveller who has challenged the dark tower in the middle ages nikolai leontievich markovitch would have been called i suppose a magician a very half-hearted and unsatisfactory one he would always have been and he would have been most certainly burnt at the stake before he had accomplished any magic worthy of the name his inventions so far as i saw anything of them were innocent and simple enough it was the man himself rather than his inventions that arrested the attention about the time of bohun's arrival upon the scene it was a new kind of ink that he had discovered and for many weeks the markovitch flat dripped ink from every pore he had no laboratory no scientific materials nor i think any profound knowledge the room where he worked was a small box-like place off the living-room a cheerless enough abode with a little high barred window in it as in a prison cell cardboard boxes piled high with feminine garments 
a sewing-machine, old dusty books, and a broken-down perambulator occupying most of the space. I could never understand why the perambulator was there, as the Markoviches had no children. Nikolai Leontievich sat at a table under the little window, and his favorite position was to sit with the chair perched on one leg, and so rocking in this insecure position he brooded over his bottles and glasses and trays. This room was so dark, even in the middle of the day, that he was often compelled to use a lamp. There he hovered, with his ragged beard, his ink-stained fingers, and his red-rimmed eyes, making strange noises to himself, and involving from his materials continual little explosions that caused him infinite satisfaction. He did not mind interruptions, nor did he ever complain of the noise in the other room, terrific though it often was. He would be absorbed in a trance, lost in another world, and surely amiable and harmless enough, and yet not entirely amiable. His eyes would close to little spots of dull, lifeless color. The only thing alive about him seemed to be his hands that moved and stirred, as though they did not belong to his body at all, but had an independent existence of their own, and his heels protruding from under his chair were like horrid little animals waiting malevolently on guard. His inventions were, of course, never successful, and he contributed, therefore, nothing to the maintenance of his household. Vera Mikhailovna had means of her own, and there were also the paying guests, but he suffered no sense of distress at his impecuniosity. I discovered very quickly that Vera Mikhailovna kept the family purse, and one of the earliest sources of family trouble was, I fancy, his constant demands for money. Before the war he had, I believe, been drunk whenever it was possible, because drink was difficult to obtain, and in a flood of patriotism, roused by the enthusiasm of the early days of the war, he declared himself a teetotaler, and marvellously he kept his vows. This abstinence was now one of his greatest prides, and he liked to tell you about it. Nevertheless, he needed money as badly as ever. He borrowed whenever he could. One of the first things that Vera Mikhailovna told me was that I was on no account to open my purse to him. I was not always able to keep my promise. On this particular evening of Bohun's arrival I came by invitation to supper. They had told me about their Englishman, had asked me indeed to help the first awkward half-hour over the stile. It might seem strange that the British Embassy should have chosen so uncouth a host as Nikolai Leontievich for their innocent secretaries, but it was only the more enterprising of the young men who preferred to live in a Russian family. Most of them inhabited elegant flats of their own, ornamented with coloured stuffs and gaily decorated cups and bright trays from the Jews' market, together with English comforts and luxuries dragged all the way from London. Moreover, Markovitch figured very slightly in the consciousness of his guests, and the rest of the flat was roomy and clean and light. It was, like most of the homes of the Russian intelligentsia, overburdened with family history. Amazing the things that Russians will gather together and keep, one must suppose, only because they are too lethargic to do away with them. On the walls of the Markovitch dining-room all kinds of pictures were hung old family photographs, yellow and dusty, old calendars, prints of ships at sea, and young men hanging over stiles, and old ladies having tea, photographs of the Kremlin, and the Lavra at Kief, copies of Ivan and his murdered son, and Serov's portrait of Charliapin as Boris Godunov. Bookcases were there with tattered editions of Pushkin and Lermontov. The middle of the living-room was occupied with an enormous table covered by a dark red cloth, and this table was the centre of the life of the family. 
a large clock wheezed and groaned against the wall and various chairs of different shapes and sizes filled up most of the remaining space nevertheless although everything in the room looked old except the white and gleaming stove vera mikhailovna spread over the place the impress of her strong and active personality it was not a sluggish room nor was it untidy as so many russian rooms are around the table everybody sat it seemed that at all hours of the day and night some kind of meal was in progress there and it was almost certain that from half-past two in the afternoon until half-past two on the following morning the samovar would be found there presiding with sleepy dignity over the whole family and caring nothing for anybody i can smell now that especial smell of tea and radishes and salted fish and can hear the wheeze of the clock the hum of the samovar nina's shrill laugh and boris's deep voice i owe that room a great deal it was from there that i was taken out of myself and memories that fared no better for their perpetual resurrection that room called me back to life on this evening there was to be in honor of young bohun an especially fine dinner a message had come from him that he would appear with his boxes at half-past seven when i arrived vera was busy in the kitchen and nina adding in her bedroom extra ribbons and laces to her costume boris nikolaevitch was not present nikolai leontievitch was working in his den i went through to him he did not look up as i came in the room was darker than usual the green shade over the lamp was tilted wickedly as though it were cocking its eye at markovitch's vain hopes and there was the man himself one cheek a ghastly green his hair on end and his chair precariously balanced i heard him say as though he repeated an incantation nuvot 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 zdrasti nikolai leontievitch i said then i did not disturb him but sat down on the rickety chair and waited ink dripped from his table on to the floor one bottle lay on its side the ink oozing out other bottles stood some filled some half empty some empty aha he cried and there was a little explosion a cork spurted out and struck the ceiling there was smoke and the crackling of glass he turned around and faced me a smudge of ink on one of his cheeks and that customary nervous unhappy smile on his lips well how goes it i asked well enough he touched his cheek and then sucked his fingers i must wash we have a guest to-night and the news what's the latest he always asked me this question having apparently the firm conviction that an englishman must know more about the war than a man of any other nationality but he didn't pause for an answer news but of course there is none what can you expect from this russia of ours and the rest it's all too far away for any of us to know anything about it only germany's close at hand yes remember that you forget it sometimes in england she's very near indeed we've got a guest coming from the english embassy his name's boone and a funny name too you don't know him do you no i don't know him i laughed why should he think i always knew everybody i who kept to myself so the english always stick together that's more than can be said for us russians we're a rotten lot well i must go and wash then whether by a sudden chance of light and shade or if you like to have it by a sudden revelation on the part of the beneficent providence he really did look malevolent standing in the middle of the dirty little room malevolent and pathetic too like a cross sick bird vera's got a good dinner ready that's one thing ivan andreevich he said and vodka a little bottle we got it from a friend but i don't drink now you know 
He went off, and I, going into the other room, found Vera Mikhailovna giving last touches to the table. I sat and watched with pleasure her calm, assured movements. She really was splendid, I thought, with the fine carriage of her head, her large, mild eyes, her firm, strong hands. "'All ready for the guest, Vera Mikhailovna?' I asked. "'Yes,' she answered, smiling at me. "'I hope so. He won't be very particular, will he, because we aren't princes?' "'I can't answer for him,' I replied, smiling back at her. "'But he can't be more particular than the Honourable Charles, and he was a great success.' The Honourable Charles was a standing legend in the family, and we always laughed when we mentioned him. I don't know. She stopped her work at the table and stood with her hand up to her brow as though she would shade her eyes from the light. I wish he wasn't coming. The new Englishman, I mean. Better, perhaps, as we were. Nicholas. She stopped short. Oh, I don't know. They're difficult times, Ivan Andreevich. The door opened and Uncle Ivan came in. He was dressed very smartly with a clean white shirt and a black bow-tie and black patent leather shoes, and his round face shone as the sun. "'Ah, Mr. Derward,' he said, trotting forward, "'good health to you! What excellent weather we're sharing!' "'So we are, Monsieur Semyonov,' I answered him, "'although it did rain most of yesterday, you know. But weather of the soul, perhaps, you mean? In that case I'm very glad to hear that you are well.' "'Ah, of the soul?' He always spoke his words very carefully, clipping and completing them, and then standing back to look at them as though they were china ornaments arranged on a shining table. No, my soul to-day is not of the first rank, I'm afraid. It was obvious that he was in a state of the very greatest excitement. He could not keep still, but walked up and down beside the long table, fingering the knives and forks. Then Nina burst in upon us in one of her frantic rages. Her tempers were famous both for their ferocity and the swiftness of their passing. In the course of them she was like some impassioned bird of brilliant plumages, tossing her feathers, fluttering behind the bars of her cage at some impertinent, teasing passer-by. She looked there now in the doorway, gesticulating with her hands. Nu, to Mikhail Andreev Alexandrovitch has put me off says he is busy all night at the office he busy all night don't i know the business he's after and it's the third time i won't see him again no i won't he good evening nina mikhailovna i said smiling she turned to me durdles mr durdles only listen it was all arranged for to-night the parisian and then we were to come straight back but your guest i began however the torment continued the door opened and boris grogoff came in Instantly she turned upon him. "'There's your fine friend,' she cried. "'Mikhail Alexandrovitch isn't coming. Put me off at the last moment, and it's the third time. And I might have gone to Musicalnaya Drama. I was asked by—' "'Well, why not?' Grogoff interrupted calmly. "'If he had something better to do—' Then she turned upon him, screaming, and in a moment they were at it, tooth and nail, heaping up old scores, producing fact after fact to prove the one to the other false friendship, lying manners, deceitful promises, perjured records. Vera tried to interrupt. Markovitch said something. I began to remonstrance. In a moment we were all at it, and the room was a whirl of noise. In the tempest it was only I who heard the door open. I turned and saw Henry Bohun standing there. I smile now when I think of that moment of his arrival. Go fitting to the characters of the place. So appropriate a symbol of what was to come. Bohun was beautifully dressed, spotlessly neat, in a bowler hat, a little to one side, 
a light blue silk scarf, a dark blue overcoat. His face wore an expression of dignified self-appreciation. It was as though he stood there breathing blessings on the house that he had sanctified by his arrival. He looked, too, with it all, such a boy that my heart was touched, and there was something good and honest about his eyes. He may have spoken, but certainly no one heard him in the confusion. I just caught Nina's shrill voice. "'Listen, all of you! There you are! You hear what he says! That I told him it was to be Tuesday when everybody knows. Virochka! Ah! Virochka! He says—' Then she paused. I caught her amazed glance at the door, her gasp, a scream of stifled laughter, and behold, she was gone. Then they all saw. There was an instant silence, a terrible pause, and then Bohun's polite, gentle voice. "'Is this where Mr. Markovitch lives? I beg your pardon.' Great awkwardness followed. "'It is quite an illusion to suppose that Russians are easy, affable hosts. I know of no people in the world who are so unable to put you at your ease if there is something unfortunate in the air.' They have few easy social graces, and they are inclined to abandon at once a situation if it is made difficult for them. If it needs an effort to make a guest happy, they leave him alone and trust to a providence in whose powers, however, they entirely disbelieve. Bohun was led to his room. His bags were carried by old Sasha, the Markovitch's servant, and the Dvornik. His bags, I remember, were very splendid, and I saw the eyes of Uncle Ivan grow large as he watched their progress. Then, with a sigh, he drew a chair up to the table and began eating zakuska, putting salt fish and radishes and sausage onto his plate and eating them with a fork. "'Dyadya, Ivan!' Vera said reproachfully. "'Not yet! We haven't begun! Ivan Andreevich, what do you think? Will he want hot water?' She hurried after him. The evening, thus unfortunately begun, was not happily continued. There was a blight upon us all. I did my best, but I was in considerable pain and very tired. Moreover, I was not favorably impressed with my first sight of young Bohun. He seemed to me foolish and conceited. Uncle Ivan was afraid of him. He made only one attack. It was a very fruitful journey that you had, sir, I hope. I beg your pardon, said Bohun. A very fruitful journey. Nothing burdensome nor extravagant. Oh, all right, thanks. Bohun answered, trying unsuccessfully to show that he was not surprised at my friend's choice of words. But Uncle Ivan saw that he had not been successful, and his lip trembled. Markovitch was silent, and Boris Nikolaevich sulked. Only once towards the end of the meal Bohun interested me. "'I wonder,' he asked me, "'whether you know a fellow called Lawrence. He travelled from England with me, a man who's played a lot of football.' "'Not Jerry Lawrence, the International,' I said. "'Surely he can't have come out here.' "'Of course it was the same. I was interested and strangely pleased. The thought of Lawrence's square back and cheery smile was extremely agreeable just then. "'Oh, I'm very glad,' I answered. "'I must get him to come and see me. I knew him pretty well at one time. Where is he to be found?' Bohun, with an air of rather gentle surprise, as though he could not help thinking it strange that anyone should take an interest in Lawrence's movements, told me where he was lodging. "'And I hope you will also find your way to me some time,' I added." "'It's an out-of-place grimy spot, I'm afraid. You might bring Lawrence round one evening.' Soon after that, feeling that I could do no more towards retrieving an evening definitely lost, I departed. At the last I caught Markovitch's eye. He seemed to be watching for something. A new invention, perhaps. He was certainly an unhappy man. End of chapter 7 Recording by Violet Blue Albertville